And when he walked out finally to do the pitch, uh, I was standing on the third baseline with the White House press pool, which was what I managed. Um, at any given time, there's about 12 members of the of the White House press corps that are covering him more closely than than the rest of the of the White House press corps. And we were all lined up on the third baseline, and he walked out and he threw that pitch, and it was just the stadium. I mean, they were chanting USA, USA, and it was just thundering, and you could just feel it in your bones, you know. Oil and Gas Today is more than exploration and production. It's more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping hours. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, is one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit www.simmonspsc.com. World Oil For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision-makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit www.worldoil.com. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we've assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit www.prang.com. EIV Capital EIV Capital is a growth equity-focused private equity firm which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit www.eivcapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Galtway Industries Known as the most connected and value-driven manufacturing partner in the oil field, Galtway Industries specializes in developing and implementing supply chain solutions for top-tier OEMs with a specialty in steel forgings, castings, machining, and fabrication designed to exceed expectations. Visit www.gultwayindustries.com to learn more. Tomahawk Safety Tomahawk Safety is a leading manufacturer of oil field safety gloves with products that are ergonomically designed for superior fit, offer best-in-class protection, and stand up to the industry's toughest jobs. For more information, please visit www.tomahawksafety.com. Range Valuation Services Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit www.rangevaluationservices.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's energy expertise is largely centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Besides risk finance and risk management consulting, Lockton provides commercial insurance and employee benefits brokerage, as well as human resources and retirement consulting. For more information, please visit www.lockton.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. We are coming to you live from the Oilfield 360 podcast studios in Houston, Texas. This is an interesting podcast. We're going to do a couple this week. I am joined by my co-host extraordinaire, Dave DeRoe. David? Good morning. Glad to see you have changed the color of your shoelaces again. This is perfect. I'm going to get you some boots one of these days. You missed St. Patrick's Day. 
I missed Saint, everybody missed St. Patrick's Day. Everybody did. It was shut down. Coronavirus. That nice voice that you came on, also making fun of my shoelaces, was our guest today, which is uh, Leslie Beyer, who is the PISA president, Petroleum Equipment Services Association. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I always ask this question of the guests, but I, I think I know the answer to this. Have you ever been on a podcast? Yes. Were they as good as we are? No. Excellent. Well, good, good response. Good answer. Good answer. I mean, don't you, listen. Leslie, don't you think, I mean, Josh is, I think he's a, a sign of hope. I mean, he's got color just up and down his leg, green shoelaces, pop. pop. He's trying to project socks. health with his yeah. green yeah. hues. Today. So we have many sponsors, great sponsors, but the one that I keep giving the most free sponsorship dollars to is whiskers.com, which is yeah. where I got these shoelaces. And I have these, I have about six or seven <laughs> different pairs of these shoelaces. Uh, and David, there's, this are the green ones I'm wearing today. I have some pink ones and some blue and they're, they're just, you know, great. I match them to the shoes that I'm wearing, but David, who is wearing the nicest pair of cowboy boots you've ever seen has no time for these shoelaces. I'm going to give out a shout out to my friend Armando down in Raymondville, Texas, <laughs> home of Armando's custom boots. Probably the best boot maker in the All world. All right, well, what opinion. boots are you wearing today? Leslie? I'm wearing cowboy boots a little bit. They're yeah. hipper cowboy boots. Those yeah, are, those are Nordstrom cowboy boots. Maybe. Yes. Well, well, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's we'll a fashion right. podcast. It's an oil and gas podcast. It's, you know. It's anything Same goes thing. this week. I mean, considering all the stuff that's going on in the world, I mean, just complete, utter nonsense and chaos. Well, and David, you're right. So today is the 24th of March, and it is a, we are right in the middle of the throes of a coronavirus, and for the record, and I mean this very seriously, actually. We are spaced appropriately apart. We are practicing social distancing. We have not touched. We have not shaken hands. Uh, David is holding. <laughs> I got my bottle of Purell hand just spray here, just in case you. somebody looks like they need to clean themselves up. Yes. Yeah. So I, I do want to be very clear that uh, and we it's are. it's not funny. We are. We it's are. not no, funny. It's We're taking serious. it very seriously. Right. And uh, we do appreciate you coming on today. Thanks. Um, so we are obviously in the middle of the Corona or COVID-19, but we're also uh, about a week or two into complete destruction of oil prices. And last I looked, they were $22 a barrel. I don't know what they're going to be at time of publication, but you can see where our mental state is right now. How have the last, and, I, and we're going to, we're going to have a broad spectrum of questions right. and conversation that we go through today, but just how have the last 10 days been for you? Uh, and if you don't mind, give everybody your, your title position, what you do, and then that'll give more depth. Under sure. Well, first of all, you did just say it's March 24th. So today is an important day for me. It's my daughter, my youngest, Olivia, her birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Olivia. She's 11, got an 11, 12, and 13-year-old. So every day is chaos um, <laughs> for me. But no, Leslie Byer, president of PISA, which is Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, like you mentioned, we're the oil field trade association, you know, for everyone in the energy value chain, um, oil field service providers, suppliers, and those companies have been hit so hard um, just, you know, ever since the downturn started in 2014. I mean, the first thing that happens is uh, the service providers really get squeezed and the suppliers. And so, you know, we've, we've hung in, we've consolidated. We have, you know, continued to to focus on innovation, and one of the things that's one of the things that a lot of people don't know about our sector is that's where the innovation comes from. You know, you hear about all these technological advances, everything that we've been able to do in the United States that really brought the shale revolution and the increases to our national security. A lot of that came from the oil field services and equipment sector. Do, do me a favor. This is a global podcast. So a lot of people are going to know just, just so everybody can place which type of companies you're talking about, because it is a large oil field right. 360. Can you give us an example. So an oil field service provider would be a Schlumberger or a Baker Hughes or Halliburton, Weatherford, a lot of those types of companies. Then there's um, equipment manufacturers, National Oil Well, Varco, all the way down to other smaller suppliers. I mean, we work with suppliers that make valves, you know, for pumps. And, and some of those have exposure to, you know, other industries. But oil and gas is, is a key one. Right. And how many member companies do you guys have? 200, 200. right now. So, yeah. And, and I appreciate you expanding on on that there is it's it's interesting right you have a, a schlumberger for instance at the top with right. personnel but then you've got a company that's going to have um 10 employees and sns industries for instance it's right you know much smaller so the, the gamut is pretty large and wide it's large but you know there's space for for those companies i mean 
a lot of innovation is driven by smaller companies. It's true. Um, but right now, I think you're just going to see a lot more consolidation, you know, back to kind of what we were talking about with what's happening today. The larger companies do definitely have an advantage um, right now in scale. Um, they're able to absorb more of what's happening because what is happening to all the companies in oil and gas, you know, is just unprecedented with everything with the virus in combination with what's happening with OPEC and Russia and Saudi. Well, and, you know, David, just jump in anytime you want. I've had two espressos, so I'm a little bit ahead of you here. But um, <laughs> yeah. one of the things that, and I, I I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I mean, we've talked about this for a while. Yeah. But, and I, I, in some ways, I hate that it's this week because I know there's just, this is a pressure filled week and you're answering to a lot of people, including your own staff and, and groups and everything. We're all trying to figure out things, but it maybe inadvertently you coming on this podcast this week is perfect because some of your experience of your through, throughout your career. And, you know, I love hearing these stories and I, I don't know which ones to ask because I've heard so many of them that I just enjoy. But if you don't mind telling the audience, really, how did you get a professional start? It certainly wasn't working for PISA. Right. Um, before I get into that, I will say, I think the whole point is we're all in this together. Right. And that's, I think kind of a, a main theme with how I got here, but um, professionally, I I'm from Lubbock, Yeehaw, West Texas. LBK. I enjoy getting back to Midland, being with my people. But I started out at Texas Tech. I went to Texas. I wanted to be a foreign service officer. So I got a degree in Latin American studies and Spanish and started work at the State Department while I was still in college, um, working at the Mexico desk. And I just was bit by foreign policy and diplomacy and government affairs and the way it all worked. So I took a job with Kay Bailey Hutchison when I was uh, a senior in college. And it's funny because when she was a senator at that time, she gave the commencement address at the University of Texas the day that I graduated. And I got to help draft that, which was pretty cool. That's very cool. It was cool. But I transferred up to her office in D.C. immediately after, I think, the week after graduation. And I was just so into the political game and how it shaped everything about the world. I did border and immigration policy on Capitol Hill for her for two years. And then, you know, a lot of the folks from Texas started talking about the governor of Texas running for president. And um, a friend of mine was already on the campaign and got me an interview. And, you know, I was able to talk my way onto that. And so I worked for the campaign for two years. And it was basically I was an advanced person. So if you know anything about presidential advance, um, these are basically like the scrappiest people you will ever find. These are people who know how to make something out of nothing. Um, you can drop an advanced person in Oshweebanon, Wisconsin and say, show me a 4000 person rally in six days um, and they can do it. You Where know? was that in Wisconsin? Oshweebanon. I got stuck there once. It's impressive. <laughs> yeah, I've been stuck in a lot of places in Iowa and New Hampshire. You remember them. <laughs> so, you know, that experience really taught me you know, how to do something with nothing, right? I mean, and the stakes were so high um, at that time. And we did well. Obviously, you know, we got through the campaign, we won, and we were at the White House, and then the stakes got even higher. And so as a full-time staffer doing advance at the White House, I did the international travel. So, um, you know, if the president was going to Italy and was going to the Vatican, we would go to the Vatican two weeks ahead, you know, work to see exactly what he was going to do, what that was going to look like. I did that in probably 40 countries. You know, I was with the president when he landed on uh, the USS Abraham Lincoln. I did. I was with him in Kosovo at Camp Bonsteel. Um, just a number of things, just experiences that I will never see in real life, um, you know, as a, as a citizen. You know, real quick on that, when you, if you ever go visit Leslie in her office in Houston, she, you know, my wall has a couple pictures, you know, from Kohl's, you have, <laughs> <laughs> you've got some pictures that are just unbeatable letters that are unbeatable. Uh, can you expand upon what you, what, what I'm talking about? Sure. I have, um, you know, we tried to frame those things. And, and, and two, I will say, I've seen people with much more crowded walls than mine, for sure. And, and for the president that I worked for, just the currency was loyalty and being humble. Um, and so a lot of us don't talk about a lot of this stuff. We don't plaster our walls. Um, but there are some things that were particularly um, important. 
And after really critical, important events, the president would occasionally, you know, sign a picture. Hey, Leslie, thanks, you know, for for your assistance on this. And so I have one uh, of Pope John Paul's funeral um, and I have one of, a you know, 30,000 person rally in Poland. And I think I have my tickets to the inaugural framed. Um, Our inaugurations were always a crazy time because for us, you know, you plan the inaugural parade, you know, all of the balls, like eight or nine inaugural balls, like it all happens all in the same day. So like at the parade, you're standing there in the snow with a ball gown and your backpack and your radio in your ear and you're listening to protesters, you know, trying to breach the the um, parade route, you know, and you finally get that done and you race off and, and get to the convention center where we had at the time I had the Texas ball I had like a eight tier camera platform with hundred TV cameras on it. Um, so just those times were, were just crazy. I could listen to George W. Bush stories all day long. I mean, it was, I don't know if it's because I'm from Texas or what it was, but I just, <laughs> I loved, you know, I loved his presidency. I know it was, it was very difficult, but again, that goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago. How did, you know, you mentioned you're part of the advanced team, but all of a sudden seven months into the presidency, mm-hmm. It changes. Right. For everybody, obviously. 9-11 happens. And your story is different than other fellow White House members, but it's still, there was intense confusion. Right. How did you guys organize that? What did you learn from that that's now helping you be a leader and I know I just skipped 17, 8, 19 years of your career. No. But, but I mean, I'm sure that all develops throughout that. It's relevant. Um, the first thing I'll say about that is, yes, you know, leadership came from the top in those days. And and I would say Secretary Andrew Card, as the White House Chief of Staff at the time that I worked there, you know, everything was about strength of character. And it's really easy when you're in a position where you land on a, you know, private or on a government aircraft, you get off, there's somebody waiting there, an interpreter, a car, take you, you know, where you want to go. You can walk into an embassy, you can talk to a hundred people, let them know what they're going to do to support a presidential trip. And you're 22. And it's really easy to, you know, get a confused version of how important you are in in that position. And so, you know, Secretary Card always made sure, you know, you were treating people with respect. Um, you know, we had these badges that were amazing. You see in a movie, <clears throat> like, you know, the FBI comes to knock on somebody's door and they flip these federal badges. We had those. And I remember Secretary Card told us, <laughs> He was like, if you need I one of those now, by the way, right, I do. It would, I might fish mine out. It might come in handy uh, when I need to go get toilet paper this week. <laughs> but, you mean Bitcoin? <laughs> he said, if I ever see any of you guys use that badge on someone to make them do something that you could otherwise just ask them to do or convince them or motivate them to do, I will take your job away from you and give it to one of the hundred people that are standing there in line waiting for it every day. And so, you know, you just, that's, that was the directive and you treated people with respect and you, you know, and there's a lot of tension between a lot of different groups and the president of the United States, you know, is involved, you know, secret service, white house, military office, the white house staff, and you know, the opportunity for tensions to run really high is there. But if you approach it with respect for others, respect for yourself and, you know, then you can lead better in that way. So, yes, I was there. I worked at the White House during 9-11. Um, I was with the president actually in Florida uh, on the 10th, got home late that night before it happened. My husband at the time was at the White House when it all went down. I had I had dropped him off. I was driving back across the 395 bridge when the plane hit the Pentagon. And you know, for us that day, it was all about getting him home. I mean, he walked home, I think, from D.C. to our house in Alexandria, which is, you know, substantial, substantial. We um, we our family was worried about us. We got hold of our family, you know, but then immediately we started, you know, assisting with what the president then had to do. Right. And so 
you know, our role as people who were responsible for, you know, how he came across visually um, was to set up the events that needed to happen. So, you know, at the National Cathedral, the, the first um, service of remembrance um, and prayer, you know, we managed that. Um, and then later, you know, I was with him when he threw out the opening pitch um, at Yankee Stadium. How, how calm was he? throughout that process. I mean, we've heard stories now, 19 years later. I mean, it's, there's a lot of historical stories about this, but I mean, just from inside the white house, George W. Bush, I mean, was there a calmness that was throughout the white house during that time or I, I mean, I was not around him all the time, yeah. so I can't say, however, I can imagine. I, I feel like I know because I know what was coming down to me mm-hmm. and what was coming down to me and my colleagues was, here's what you need to do. Are you okay? Is everyone okay? All right. You know, then let's move forward. This is what we're going to work on right now. And it, it just, it, it, there was a sense that Americans were coming together to help each other. And I never felt that more than I did that day when he threw out that pitch in Yankee stadium. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was the first time ever remembering that. Uh, Unbelievable. Well, we came in on helicopters and we were the first air traffic, you know, it was low. We were coming in low and it it was just, uh, we landed in a field across the street, but before we landed, we could see the people trying to get into Yankee stadium. It was the first time they had magnetometers. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, created logistical nightmare. And so when we flew over the stadium, you know, you could see all the people, you know, just crowded around the entrances. We landed, you know, we got in and I, and, We'd been there, so we knew what the plan was and where he was going to go and everything. And when he walked out finally to do the pitch, uh, I was standing on the third baseline with the White House press pool, which was what I managed um, at any given time. There's about 12 members of the of the White House press corps that are covering him more closely than than the rest of the of the White House press corps. And we were all lined up on the third baseline. And he walked out and he threw that pitch, and it was just the stadium. I mean, they were chanting USA, USA, yeah, and it was just thundering and you could just feel it in your bones, you know, and I've just never been so proud to be an American. Everybody wanted to help each other and we knew we were all in it together. And so you see, I mean, I don't, I would never make any kind of comparison, but I hope that we feel the same way now, but what we're facing is global, you know, but as Americans, we need to be doing the right thing to take care of each other and that's stay home, obviously, you know, but it, it gave me a sense that crisis gave me a sense that being an American was something that I cherish and that I value and that makes me want to support others. Uh, like I said, I could listen to this all day long because I know <laughs> there's a bunch more stories that are out there. But as you have anything you want to comment on? Well, no, I just think it's I think there's some interesting parallels that can be driven there, which I want to talk about a little bit as it relates to Pisa going, yeah. going forward. But I think maybe the one way this is somewhat unique and different is that that our enemy now is is not it's identifiable underneath the microscope and blood tests but it it's not something that we can see and uh there's still a lot of unknowns versus you know what we were dealing with in 9-11 well so So i hope like i hope like you said that uh that this will bring people together thus far there's there seems to be a lot of confusion and a I'm concerned about the the angst that is probably building within a lot of people. Um, well, and I, w- I definitely want to get to that, but I want to go. So I've, I've taken us up to call it 2008 yeah. with your career in the White House. <clears throat> so 12 years. How did you get to, you've been president of PISA for coming on six years. Coming now. on six years. Yes. So how did you get in to this role? So after, um, you know, the White House and, and I worked for, you know, basically the full first term and the second half of, of, or the first half of the second term. So I traveled pretty much full time for seven consecutive years, more or less. I mean, I didn't even have an apartment at one point. We just had a storage unit. So I took an appointment at the Department of Housing because I had my government affairs background to fall back on since I'd started at the Senate. I understood, you know, the legislative process. And so I took a job at HUD, worked on funding, basically. And then with one of my former White House colleagues, started doing more public affairs work and did that for a while. Got married, had three babies. I had three babies in three years, like the hard 
way, right? You know, not twins. So I was pregnant and working (laughs) for five years. By the way, if you've never heard, we interviewed uh, Ann Fox. Yeah. Have you listened to the podcast? I haven't heard it yet. She's she's powerful. It's a one of the. I always tell people she was destined for success from like 13 years old. So yeah, but she has a story about um, being a leader and then having a baby and. It's it's pretty funny when when you say it's the hard pretty way. Pretty powerful. I mean, Anne Anne is a pretty tough cookie, as you yes. well know, and and uh, she re- really gave a lot of insight into herself, which was I thought pretty bold and, mm-hmm. and also great. So it's great. It's great for women to, to do. You know, you you have seen historically, you know, women taking those primary roles at home, but more and more increasingly, as we can put on policies like parental leave, you know, if if the dad partner who can stay home in the beginning and things can be shared from the beginning, that's just going to be better for everybody. And I was so fortunate, you know, my husband was so helpful. Um, but I, it's, it's different for everybody, you know, yeah. in, in those first that's, stages. That's one of the comments that Anne had that was pretty funny. She said, uh, you know, I, I learned that dads want to be parents too. <laughs> yeah, they do. And we need to like, it, Culturally, in the United States, we need to tee up the dads to be parents by giving them, you know, parental leave. It's just, it should just be parental leave. It's not maternity leave. It's not paternity leave. It's just parental. You have a new baby, you adopt a baby, you need time. Right. Well, but I, okay. So you come in, you've got three babies, three years. Yeah. Then. And are you working that through through all that? I was well? working, yes. But fortunately, you know, I was in a position where I could work from home. I mean, you have three three babies in three years. Like, it's hard to carry on an adult conversation well, you, at some point. you mentioned point. you had a PR. Did you have your own little yes. business or yes. something? Okay. We had our own kind of shop. And my partner, my business partner at the time, you know, every 17 months I'd call and he'd be like, oh, what are you going to tell me now? It's another baby. <laughs> so we got through it. So I got to ask a really important question. It's relevant to me now. Huggies or Pampers? I mean, what's your? Oh man, I don't remember what my babies I, wore. I couldn't think. But of I used to have them delivered well, huggies, to the door. Your huggies, man. Yeah, I, like huggies, yeah, man. Huggies, yeah. I felt like I was the single largest, largest private, you know, consumer of diapers in Alexandria, <laughs> Virginia, for a long time. It would just come get delivered to my front door. But yeah, I had three in diapers. You're pre Costco. That's pre Costco. Oh, right? it was pre. Well, I think maybe we had a Sam's out there, but I was not cruising the aisles <laughs> and buying them all. No, I was just getting it all delivered. Okay. So hang on. We're back to this here. It's uh, so you have it, you got a partner, you're doing PR. Yes. And then you move into the national association of manufacturers. That was actually after we moved back to Texas. So, um, you know, my husband stayed on at the white house and then started to do some political consulting. And we were in Houston on vacation, uh, after just a few months after my youngest daughter was born and our middle son started having seizures and we got to Texas children's and, uh, wound up staying there for two months. Um, he was having a hundred seizures a day and it took a while to stabilize him. And we never actually went home to Washington from that vacation. So our friends came and packed us up. And we called our, our realtor. He put the house on the market. And then Todd flew back one day and got everything and drove it back to Houston. Wow. So we moved in with my parents who have been so supportive to me always in my whole life. And um, I think I have them to thank for everything that I have. But we moved in with them and, you know, just worked full time on the rehab of Grant. You know, he finally became stabilized. And but he had to he was two at the time. He was almost oh, two. man, just a baby. And so he kind of had to relearn a lot of occupational things. And so we focused on that full time. Neither one of us worked for about a year. Once Grant became stable for us, we we wanted to stay near the hospital when we needed to stay near my parents. And so we decided to stay in Houston. And once I was able, to, you know, to to get back to work and he was in preschool and things had, you know, f- kind of flattened out, then that's when I went to work for the National Association of Manufacturers. And it was a perfect job for me at the time because I ran their Texas office, basically. And I would get back to D.C. a little bit, but I basically ran out of Houston kind of the main priorities, the main legislative priorities for the largest member companies in the NAM that were headquartered in Texas. And that was mainly oil and gas operators. And so that was my first exposure to the industry. Okay. And that was what years are we talking about there? Like 2012? Yes, it was 2012 to 2014 because I took the job at PISA in 
July 2014, and then the bottom dropped out in November. It was such a nice welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's. I was just trying to get timing on it all. So. Yeah. All right. So you came in to. Now, real quick, we talked about PISA, but PISA is an old organization. It is. PISA is 87 years old. 87 years old. Uh You know, again, David, I don't know if you've been to their office in a while, but they have a a book on their cable, a coffee table book. And it's from, I mean, 19. Oh, it's old. That book's at least 50 years old. And it's just photos of people at events, uh, PISA events. Oh, that that book is at least 50 years old or, you know, because the pictures, by the way, 50 years old is 1960. So, okay, then this book is 70 years yeah, old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's we're in 2020. This is not 95. And we have a bunch of cool vintage ads, too, that PISA used to run in the 50s. Um, yeah, y'all been running some of those. We do yeah, occasionally. On Flashback it, Friday. The, on Flashback Friday. It is so crazy to see these. I mean, some of them, you just can't even believe what we were doing in advertising back in those days. But we've come a long way. But it's fun to look back at this. Yeah. So I was involved. Were you involved in PISA in 2014? Yeah. Okay. So I, I was lucky enough to get involved in about 2008, which uh, at the time drilling was just king of the world. So everybody was focused on the IADC, which is another great organization, uh, both locally and nationally. So PISA was there, but it wasn't uh, the primary industry organization that people focused on, again, because drilling was just the activity. They were going from vertical to horizontal at that time. So there was a lot of activity, a lot of technology. But I was able to get involved with PISA uh, through my old boss. And there was they had great leadership, but it was definitely had a different it felt like a different mission and a different vibe in those early days. And then here you come July of 2014. What? was your vision for PISA when you came into it? Because it's in many ways, it's not the same organization. In, in some ways it is, the, the good stuff stayed, uh-huh. but it's different. So what was your vision That's for PISA? totally different. It, I mean, it really is. Thank you for saying that. You know, coming from the NAM, and I think that Jay Timmons has structured the NAM along with Aaron Streeter um, to be such an extraordinary organization. And I saw what a trade association could do in in terms of advocacy for the companies that it worked with. And so, you know, when I looked at PISA, you know, when they first kind of talked to me, I was so happy in my NAM job. You know, it was a, it was a tough decision um, to leave. But I looked at the way PISA was structured and I saw that they just weren't being the advocates that they could be. And so my vision for for PISA initially when I came on board was to build the appropriate governance and structure and framework to to then really be able to advocate on behalf of the sector. Because so many people, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't even know the difference between upstream, midstream, and downstream, much less like what the service sector is, you know. But the service sector is the most exciting. You know, that's where the technology and innovation comes from. That's where all the jobs are. Over 500,000 jobs are in the service sector. And so you can get really excited about some great things, but there wasn't any actual advocacy or support going on there. So my vision when I first came in was to build the governance in such a way that there was a strong enough foundation to really start working on government affairs. Okay, but you're not a lobby. We so, don't. We are not official lobbyists. We advocate. Okay, so can you help give me the example of the difference there? Sure. We would not go into a member of Congress's office and say, we want you to vote this way on this bill. Which is what a lobbyist would do. Which is what a lobbyist would do because – we have long-term contracts with the federal government and we train foreign service officers and civil service officers, just like the ones that I used to want to be when, you know, I was in college. Like, that's so funny to me is like how I come full circle. I wanted to be a foreign service officer and now I work with them all the time. Well, this that's, that's one of your better programs that you have. It is. And it's an important relationship that we have with the federal government, you know, to explain to them, this is how the industry works. This is how you, um, as a foreign or civil service officer can promote U.S interest abroad and within the industry, you know, that is a relationship that's important for us. And we can't, you know, the ethics would be questionable if we lobbied at the same time as trained the federal government. You know what I mean? So because that training is so important and because it's, you know, a critical part of what we do, 
we advocate and we don't, um, th- that means we talk about things that could impact our sector. We talk about the great things about our sector, what our sector would like to see, but we don't go in and give money to political campaigns saying, we want you to do this this way. How long have you been doing that FSO, FSO program? That program, we celebrated the 25th year anniversary uh, two years ago, okay. so 26, 27 I, I know it's one of your better programs and it's, I the I've gone to some of the events and they love it. And by they, I mean the foreign service officers enjoy it. I mean, their eyes are opened right. to what this industry is. And they are in such a unique position to be able to support our industry, you know, globally. And so once they see the technology and innovation, a lot of them just don't even have the idea of scale. They walk away from that. That's the feedback I hear most is, oh my gosh, this week blew me away. I had no idea the scale. I didn't understand you couldn't get on a ladder and go down and see a subsea, you know, service equipment or whatever. You know, that's the difference is really being able to show them what this industry does and what it means. Um, And the long-term life cycle of projects is something else that most people don't understand, but kind of blows them away. You know, the average person will say, oh gosh, you know, those oil and gas companies, they make so much money, they can make these decisions. No, they invest at millions and sometimes a billion dollars. And then 20 years later, they might, you know, see what comes out of that. These are long-term projects with this huge scale. And two, and I know we're not talking about this right now, but that's why the energy industry is going to be the one to take us through a smart energy transition. We're the only ones that know how to do that. Right. We're the only ones who really understand the solutions, the solutions come from and us. the scale and the length of time that it's going to take to transition how we use energy. All right. I'm going to pull you back on this because this, right. this is when you get excited, but you're right. I do get excited. And, and we're going to talk more about that <laughs> on another podcast with uh, you and Tim Tarpley as well. Okay, so, great. Uh, because it is incredibly powerful. The passion, what you're describing is necessary. I mean, David and I, we were talking, you know, off, off air here with you, how important this is. All right. But back to the piece of transition. Yeah. 2014, here's the vision advocate. There's a lot of people that are hungry to try to help. Right. So you identify that. And now how does five years go by almost six? Uh How does it go by that quickly? And what were some wins for you along the way, and maybe even some of the challenges that you ran into? You know, in the beginning, I really saw very clearly how we were going to need to restructure the governance. And, you know, I mean, there was a lot of glass that had to be broken there. And so the board changed entirely. It was, there were 59 people on the board that went down to 15. Uh, We changed the name, we changed the logo, we changed, you know, the way that the governance worked, we took away committees, we added committees. And so all of that in an organization that was 80 years old at the time, you know, people are invested in outcomes. People care about what happens. And, you know, although I feel like as a leader, you have to articulate the vision and, you know, I was trying to articulate the vision and I think it did a pretty good job. There, Somebody always is going to not yeah, really everybody. love the, the process. And so there were definitely challenges along the way, but, you know, we were able to really build that structure that has enabled us to grow so much. And through the downturn, we wound up growing right. because People understood what a trade group that was really focused on the sector, how it could support the sector, both in the train and the train elevate network. I think that whole um, just applying those principles to everything we did is really what pushed us over the edge, just focusing on how we could support the companies in those three ways. So you said the, the glass had to be broken. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth or take it, but when I hear that, I either think of a glass ceiling which to me is, you know, you pushing through with some people that needed to be pushed through or glass needed to be broken in the sense that there were protected uh, ideals that we needed to crack that glass and get in to fix it. Which, which way did you it's mean more it? more like there were protected ideals. Okay. You know, I don't feel like being a woman in that position has changed anything for me. I, you know, I, I don't feel like I have to approach that position differently. My predecessor was in that position for 35 years and she was a woman. Mm. Um, I'm a very different individual with a different professional background. And that took a little bit of people getting used to. I think in the beginning, as in any job, you know, you come into a new job and people are going to compare you or or maybe think that you were kind of like your predecessor and I'm just a different animal. Um, And so that took a second for people to realize, oh, okay, no, she has experience. Maybe she can. Well, I mean, look, you manage a lot of big egos, smart people, men and women. 
Yes. And I mean, and look, I I have no problem with big egos. So, <laughs> and I, I and I mean that very sincerely. So, I mean, for you to to go in there, there is some <laughs> DeRose laughing look, at because his ego is the one I got to manage every once in a while. Well, I, and by the way, tell me, that, like I said, I got two espressos in no, you before baby, you got I, here. I love it. I love it. I, I think. <laughs> I think the biggest thing that, that, in my opinion, that you've brought to PISA in is, you know, I'm involved with a number of different organizations. Josh and I are involved with committees with you and on your advisory board and uh, glad to be a part of it. But the not only the external advocacy you've brought to PISA, which I think advocacy is a, is a strong word as opposed to lobbying because you're, you're advocating our position with facts and not necessarily emotion or right. ideals. But also, I think the inward advocacy you've brought to the industry, because I think if you look at, we've had these conversations offline about different organizations that have served a purpose, but might be getting a little long in the tooth. And just like the industry needing to look at consolidating, there is, there is room for both inward and outward advocacy at those groups that I would say its members are not getting the same benefit as if the same, in some cases, same members at PISA are getting through PISA. So we really tried to build that up, yeah. not to interrupt you, but I mean, there, there are so many workforce development programs that we've laid on executive coaching, you know, diversity and inclusion training. That was one of the big things. And we talk about breaking some glass, you know, the first time I came in and said, you know, Hey, I, I want a diversity and inclusion committee, and this is what it's going to look like, and this is what we're going to do. The board it supported me a hundred percent always, and I always felt very supported by the chairman that hired me, Paul Coppinger, who's a great person and a mentor of mine. CEO of uh, We're SPM, yes, or I guess just SPM now. SPM now, yeah. but you know, I always felt very supported, and those things that we do now. That, that's what helps a lot of the member companies. You know, a lot of the companies that we talked about, the larger ones, you, they'll have internal training programs, they'll have internal executive development, all of that. But we do work with the smaller ones, like you mentioned. And not every company is going to have the resources, especially in a downturn market, to develop their people. And through PISA, we have really figured out a low cost way for our members to be able to do it. And it's fantastic content. And just the the response that we get from our members is like, I, you know, I can't believe that I'm able to develop my people through you guys in this way, because I know what it would cost me if I tried to outsource that. Well, you're talking, you're, you're really taking a lot of information and condensing that into just the things with content. How many, well, if we could expand that just slightly, how many? Yeah. There, there are 16 different committees. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. That are about. constantly running on different, you know, topics within the industry, you know, whether that's supply chain or energy transition or ESG, which is our huge area of focus. And we can talk about that a little Definitely bit later. Definitely want to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But, you know, 16 different committees running programs and events and the, you know, in addition, then the executive coaching programs and the diversity and inclusion certification programs. And and soon to be an ESG How many events do you guys have annually that aren't uh, there's canceled about, by coronavirus? Oh man! <laughs> well, in a given year, yeah, where we're not facing <laughs> where we're right. not facing this, um, we there's about 120 events that we do, and none of them are just hanging out at the bar. And, They're and, all content driven. Well, let's don't let's don't just not that there's a problem. Yeah, let's just chill out. But on you that. can fund that yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so wait a minute. So 120. And how many were there when you got involved in 2014? PC was doing 12 events a year. 12 events a year to 120. I mean, just think about that. If you're listening to this, you know, I, full disclosure, David and I, and we're not interviewing you for, for any other reason that we want it, but we want to hear your story. But David and I are also on your membership committee. Right. And if you're and not, I thank you for that. Yeah, we love it. We've got a great group. I mean, guys like John Daniel, there's uh, uh Craig Lane, great, great group of people on there, but people should be members. If you are anywhere touching oil and gas, mm -hmm. you should be a member of PISA. And the only reason- This is your moment. This is your plug. We gotta get it. <laughs> the only reason, you know, that some people aren't is because they don't realize what we're offering. Right. You know, there are a couple of companies that are like, oh yeah, well, I, I remember PISA from 10 years ago. I don't want to spend money on that. PISA is an entirely different organization today than it was 10 years ago and 100% supports the business. There is nothing that we do that doesn't absolutely support the bottom line of the business. And that in and of itself 
is is a reason. Even if you think you don't have discretionary spend for advocacy, if you don't realize how important that is at the end of the day, I mean, look at what we're trying to get into these stimulus bills right now. That's important at the end of the day. And for the real quick, for those that just heard that, we're going to be, if you listen to the other podcast with Leslie Beyer and Tim Tarpley, we're going to be going into that much more detail on it. So find that podcast and listen to it as well. So keep going. Oh, sure. So even if you if you don't see the value, which is there, um, if you're not a member of PISA and training and supporting your people in a low cost way, you're just missing a great opportunity. You're missing the opportunity for them to learn and develop and to network and to get connect with your customers. And some people are like, well, why would I want to be in a trade association? I've heard this, you know, of just my peers. It's not just your peers. Your customers are very much involved in PISA. You know, there are a ton of events where all of the customer, the executives from the operators are there, the independents. I mean, there's a lot of relationship building. And at the end of the day, that's what it gets back to is that relationship building. That's what we're relying on now. And that's what's going to get us through that development and those relationships. Well, let's, let's talk. Let me, let me ESG, jump in yeah. here because I think I think that's that's critical. The one thing that I've that I've always impressed, been impressed by and liked about PISA is, is also how we have protected the environment so people could have meaningful conversations and build those relationships. I think from my perspective and observation, everything that you have started and have improved at PISA plays very much into the message and the role that is needed, I think, now and going forward as it relates to the ESG conversation, which the diversity inclusion stuff is, is tied to that, you know, elevating people, training them, making sure they're competent and are aware of what you're trying to do plays into that. It's one of the reasons I reached out to you and proud to have you as part of the board of the Energy ESG Thank Council, you. which Sorry is a that. which is a big deal to have you a part of. But I think Companies, particularly folks that are in the energy services, the suppliers, the manufacturers, distributors, uh, should seriously consider uh, joining PISA if they're not already because their awareness and uh, action on the ESG conversation is going to be critical. And to your point about also why they should be there, not just because their peers are there, because the customers, customers are going to be paying attention because let's exactly face it, right. their customers at the end of the day, for the most part, are oil and gas operators. And while operators do a little bit of stuff, they are almost 100% dependent upon their service companies and the relationships. So what those service companies do and don't do directly impacts these operators. These operators are under the microscope to, to uh, you know, uh, position themselves and advocate and show efficiency in, in their operations. And that really is dependent upon their relationships with their service companies. What do you say about that? I think there's just such an important role for ESG in the service sector. And that's why I've been pushing it for three years now. And I'm so happy to see finally more and more people coming on board. I think it, it is a little bit like the Wild West because, you know, companies are trying to figure out how should I report? What framework should I use? You know, what should I be? How should I approach this? And so I appreciate your leadership in starting the ESG Council. And I know that goal there is to really try and identify just some very baseline areas to start across the entire industry, you know, and, and taking different approaches with different sectors. I think that's so needed. But that gets back to how much, you know, my board, I feel like has supported me when, when we came, when I came to them with this and said, look, we really need to be talking about ESG. There are a few people on the board that were, you know, said, no, I, I don't think that's relevant. And um, we had some tough conversations and we went ahead and moved forward and that's where we are today. It right. is critical. You know, now right now we're real focused on keeping the lights on and hanging on to as many people as we can because of the double whammy with the virus and, and OPEC. But, um, we cannot lose sight of how important ESG is, um, and, and how critical it is. Like you said, you know, for, 
the folks in our sector, supply chain transparency for the operators is a critical part of them approaching their own ESG. So we really need to, to be able to um, give tools to our member companies on how to approach it and how to really capitalize the opportunity that that is there um, when you are able to show metrics and growth and um, achievable results that you're making on environment, social, and governance areas. I think also to help clarify and not make it so scary, to your point earlier, 650 frameworks plus, which one do you choose? And then I think you would probably agree that most of these companies have some really good stuff to report. They've just never known they've ever had to report this stuff in the past and helping them understand what those things are and what package that message is, I think, one mm-hmm. of the things that that PISA is going to be able to deliver to to its members, which is so critical. We are. And, you know, for the past 18 months, we've been holding seminars on, you know, even just educating companies on the fact that the way investors are getting their information from you are bots on your website. And so if you're not putting it up there correctly, you're being dinged. You're you're getting an F on certain frameworks and you don't even realize it. So, you know, lay it out this way. It, it's as easy as that. And it, it's really been helping our members improve their scores. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, and we were talking, obviously, we're in, we're in uh, troubled waters right now, a lot mm-hmm. of uncertainty. I think if there was ever a time for anybody in the energy service chain to think about joining an organization your organization is one of those organizations that i would i would focus on joining simply because uh, the advocacy you are providing for the industry i would say almost more effectively and loudly than some of the other organizations now and maybe somewhat biased but i'm involved i'm a member of most of those other organizations as well but i think for companies if they're really thinking about where they want to spend their their money right now, I, I don't think, you know, dropping a membership at PISA makes a lot of sense. If anything, they ought to double down and that. figure out how they can participate in the advocacy to the appropriate parties and, and look for, um, you know, guidance from their peers and, and kind of drive the narrative on where we need to go. I mean, this, our country, is uh, a reflection of resiliency. You mentioned it earlier. No prouder time to be an American when you're at the at the baseball field with President Bush. I think this is a unique time, and um, you know people question why we would do this now. I think people need some hope. Mm-hmm. You know, our industry has not uh, ever gotten through a tough time. Now, we may be uh, skinned up a little bit along the way, and mm-hmm. and there's going to be some pain, but I think. We will emerge as we always will. There's no alternative to what we do. And uh, it's clearly needed by the world, despite what you think about supply and despite what you think about demand. Right. It's not going anywhere. So. And I think, too, like we all know, like I said, that we're in it together. I mean, I can't tell you how many of my peers and other groups have reached out to me. Some members, including yourselves, have reached out to me and said, what can I be doing right now to help support what what y'all are doing on behalf of the sector? You know, some of our publishing partner. I mean, just everyone yeah. is really saying, what can we do to help each other? you know, let's do this. Yeah. And so, I mean, PISA too, like we, my team, you know, we have chapters in West Texas and, you know, out in mid-continent, we have international chapters. We're trying to support everyone in that way. So what we're going to do, uh, I always, David and I, we ask a couple different questions as we wrap these things up. But one of the questions that I want to ask you, and it's David, I, I can't tell you much. I appreciate you leading that ESG and, and Leslie, very unbiasedly, I think that you are, and we've said this off camera or whatever, off off air, I believe that you need to be the voice of ESG and the uniter of ESG for our industry. I don't mean to put too much yeah, pressure on you because I'm not going to edit no this pressure. part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and I, in the committee that David, the council that David's put yes. together truly is a group of, of strong leaders. And I'll plug that with the a website here in a minute. But one of the things that is important in these downturns mm-hmm. is energy and in and, and what i mean by energy is you, passion passion are you ready to lead another five years into this because this is going to be a tough five years and i'm putting you on the spot but i mean like is this how do you feel is your energy level ready are you ready to lead because this is about to be a very hefty 
thing to lift for five it years. It is. And that's such, that's such a, I think it's a good question right now. Um, no, we've had so much success with PISA that, you know, people ask me like, are you, you fixed it? Are, are you done now? You're going to go <laughs> fix something else? No, I am so excited about being able to move PISA to the next level. There's so much still left to do. Absolutely. And you can tell I am passionate about what the oil field services and equipment sector does. And I feel like, you know, to the point where we can continue to show the world what, how we can put you know, how we can contribute to a smart energy transition and what this sector will contribute to that. I mean, I absolutely can get excited about that all day long. And the people that I work with, I feel so fortunate. You know, the board, we have 15 members on the board. We have about 30 on the advisory board. We've got good governance in place with three-year terms so that our leadership refreshes. I know you're, you feel sad. Your term's coming up. The term is ending. <laughs> But keep going. We're going to strike that part too, probably. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, that's right. yeah, that's right. But um, no, I, I'm excited about the next five years. David, do you have anything else? You know, Leslie, I do view you as a leader. Uh, you're a female leader. You've done a lot for uh, for our industry already and continue to do so Thank at PISA. We typically like to, to ask, is there anything that you would like to share to any of our listeners as it relates to um, any words of wisdom or advice that you might be able to give to, to an aspiring leader in our industry? I feel like I have always, and maybe this is just a reflection of my personality, but I've always really relied on my personal relationships and that has served me well. And if I'm in a professional relationship with someone and, and, I treat them with respect and they treat me with respect and we have a shared goal. You know, there's nothing that you can't do. And, and there's no reason not to hang on to those forever. You know, my former board members at the NAM are still my great friends. You know, my colleagues from the White House days 20 years ago, if I were to, you know, call them right now, we would lay down in traffic for each other today. Um, and I feel so fortunate in that. And I've, you know, people talk about, oh, you should do a networking event. It's not really networking. It's investing in others. And if you invest in others, especially as a woman, if you invest in other women, then that is what is going to make you go further. I mean, and I, I know a lot of people have read Adam Grant's Give and Take. And um, I just think the principles in that are so valuable. You know, what you give to others and how you bring others along and how you're invested in what's good for others is going to ultimately be good for you. And I think that's something that women need to remember and everyone looking to be a strong leader. So my biggest takeaway from that is, uh, Josh, if when you do roll off the advisory board, that you will still have a relationship with Leslie. So that's that's important. We'll still be friends. Yeah. Listen, you got to find me first. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in a bunker. You gotta, I, I have to, I'm not signing anything. <laughs> so listen, let me, Leslie, you've been phenomenal. I Thank appreciate you. your time. We're going to wrap up, but I want to give a couple People can reach out to you at PISA.org, That's correct? right. P-E-S-A uh -huh. dot org. And then, uh, David, you mentioned it. I want to give it a, a shout as well. The Energy ESG Council. That's correct. Do you have a website there? We do. It's uh, www.eesgc.org. So just real quick, for those of us listening, you can always tell how old somebody is when they give a website and they, and they, they start with www. www. So David, David, I just is, like saying those w are the keys w that were glued on my computer screen. My first David day is in not life. part of the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So okay, so pisa.org is the best way to get in touch with you. Uh, the ESG, I want to push one more time. I Leslie, continue to push that. It's going to be Thank big, you. and all of this disruption is truly an opportunity for the change that we're looking to make. So I hope that uh, you find some greener pastures and uh, clearer pastures, maybe is the best way to say that to, to keep pushing these things through. Do you have anything else that you want to add? No, I just appreciate y'all's leadership. I think Oldfield 360 is an amazing podcast. And look, y'all just started it, what, a couple months ago, and now you're number 47? We are number 47 in, in the entrepreneur category. We okay. are top 1% globally for this podcast, which is just shocking to us. And I'm so impressed with that. Thank you. And it, you know, it's a little bit of a testament to the content, but I think a big testament to both of your personalities. No, it's more to the content. <laughs> it's the guests yeah. because we've actually been around for a year. 
<laughs> so, well, listen, that's going to wrap us up today. Uh, Leslie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Uh, David, I, as always, the man, thanks for coming and, and the whole team. So Oil Fill 360 podcast is available on your favorite uh, podcast platform. We are available at www.oilfill360.com. Uh, look for us on LinkedIn. Follow us, subscribe. If you have any questions, you can shoot David and I an email at david at oilfill360.com or josh at oilfill360.com. Jonathan is our sound production guy. Thank you for coming in during this crazy week. Thank you, John. And Thank you, John. Uh, remember, you guys, be safe, practice social distancing, wash your hands, et cetera, et cetera. Take it seriously, flatten the curve. Thank you, everybody. Leslie, thanks again. Thanks. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please visit www.oilfield360.com. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, www.simmonspsc.com. World Oil, www.worldoil.com. Prang & Associates, www.prang.com. EIV Capital, www.eivcapital.com. Galtway Industries, www.galtwayindustries.com. Tomahawk Safety, www.tomahawksafety.com. Range Valuation Services, www.rangevaluationservices.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, www.lockton.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE, PJC, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Co., member SIPC and FINRA, in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority, and in Hong Kong through Piper Sandler Hong Kong Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates. U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, Registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler & Co., and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.